This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Number one, very strange, Yontif, if you don't mind me saying. Who here understands, okay, it's a, it's, it's a very hard thing to understand. Why? I'll tell you why. Pesach, you're not allowed to have chametz, right? What is chametz? Chametz is bread. Now, a whole year, you're allowed to eat bread. A whole year, you're supposed to eat bread. You make a bris, you wash. Make a pinyin ben, you wash. You make shower brachas, you wash. You wash. You go to a wedding, you're supposed to wash. A sudas mitzvah, right? Any sudas mitzvah, you have to wash. Even if you're on a diet, it doesn't matter. You have to wash and bench. That makes it a sudas mitzvah. Yeah, some people say mezainas, but really, but really you're supposed to wash. Shabbos, you have to wash three times, right? So bread, and you can even make kiddush on bread. Bread is very chashiv, is very important in the Jewish religion. So now a whole year, you're supposed to eat bread. All of a, all of a sudden comes Pesach, and, 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 and it's like, like kryptonite for Superman. You know, like if you get, if you get near it, you're going to lose all your power, right? Like you can't have it in your house. You're not allowed to even see it. You're not allowed to even have it in your closet locked away. You're not, unless you sell it. So, and there's such a chomer and such a fear of chametz on Pesach, not only that, but you're not allowed to even have a crumb. Not that you're not allowed to have a big piece of challah. You're not even have a crumb. And you gotta go and you gotta vacuum your car, and you gotta vacuum your house, and this year it comes out on Shabbos, it comes out Monday Shabbos, so it's very hard, you gotta wash early in the morning, and you have to have a little piece of challah because it's Arab Pesach, and you have to eat that early in the morning, and you have to swallow it all, and all the little crumbs you put in the tissue, and you have to put it in the, and flush it down the toilet, right? It's a very hard thing. What are you making me so much sugar? What's wrong with a piece of bread? If you have a piece of chazer in your house, you have a piece of shrimp, oyster, chazer shalom, or a pig in your house, you're allowed to have, it doesn't say anywhere in the Torah you can't have pig in your house. So you're not allowed to eat it. Take a big fat pig, and you put him on your dining room table, Right? And you let him sit there and you stare at him for seven days straight, right? There's no Avera in that. You could even touch it. There's no Avera in it. You could hug it. There's no Avera in it. Right? But a piece of, of uh, a crumb, a crumb, right? Of kosher bread, you're not allowed to have. And even if you put it in your closet, and you keep your noodles in your closet, right? And you put tape on it, but you didn't sell it, you're over on the Avera. So... We have to think a little bit into the understanding. What is Pesach all about? Why am I cleaning my car like I'm a sugar nut, right? And cleaning my house. Okay, today, you know, a lot of people are lazy. And they um, they sell the house and they go to Florida or Mexico or Cancun or any one of those islands. We, we know why, because they want to see Kriya Samsus again. We understand. <laughs> they want to be by the water. But, um, but in the old days, and still in many houses, were people who stay home. The very, very makbid, my grandmother, Shalom, used to clean for Pesach on Hanukkah already. Okay, she lived in Washington Heights, and if I would go into the living room after Hanukkah with a piece of bread, she would start screaming, it's, it's, it's Pesach thick already. That's how scared she came from Europe. It was so scared of chametz. So what, what's the idea behind chametz? And, and the whole matzah thing, right? It's the same ingredients as the bread. And 18 minutes, and then, who said 18 minutes? And 19 minutes? What's the difference? But there's a very big difference between the 18 minutes and the 19 minutes. So what's the background? What's the understanding? What is Pesach? What's wrong with a piece of bread? What does Hashem want from us? 
Why do we have to work so hard? Question number one. Question number two, when you come to the Seder, so it's, it's very hard to understand. That's why we say Manashtana. We say Manashtana, we call it Leilos. Right? And we have four different things. Matzah, Chametz, dipping once, dipping twice. We have Shayirako, uh, so it comes before that. Eating regular vegetables, eating mora, eating bitter vegetables. And the last thing, why do we lean? Your mommy screams at me all the time, sit up straight. And on Pesach, everybody's leaning by the Seder. So those are the four questions. Now, the four questions is really, two of them are a paradox of the other two. Because chametz, because matzah is low bread. It never rises. It's made from very cheap materials, right? So it sort of keeps you down. It reminds you that you were a slave, right? Marar, it reminds you that you're a slave. Leaning reminds you that you're a king. Dipping is what they do, what kings do. They used to have, today, you know, now they sell all these dips. And I know the Sardim, you always had Baba Ganush and Tachina and all these dips. But, but dips are the things for the, is, is extra. It's an extra part of the meal. So that's for a king. So tonight we ask, every night I only dip once. If I dip once, and, and tonight I dip twice. So there's a paradox in the Manashtana. There's kingdom, I'm a king, I'm leaning, I'm dipping, and then there's poor man. I'm eating matzah and I'm eating moro. Make up your mind. What are we celebrating tonight? Purim doesn't have a paradox. Purim is one big celebration. You drink, su'uda. Sukkot doesn't have a paradox. There's no opposites in Sukkot. There's no opposites in Shavuot. There's no opposite in Rosh Hashanah. There's no opposites in Yom Kippur. But for some reason, Pesach... You sit by the Seder, and you, you don't know, what, what, what am I playing? What, what's my act here tonight? What am I supposed to do? You know, my father-in-law, and I know it's many men hugging, my father didn't have this minute, he used to take the matzah in the bag and put it over his shoulder, and used to walk around the table. And he said, we were slaves in Mitzrayim. He used to walk around. It wasn't my minute, but it was my father-in-law's minute. So you're walking around, you're a slave. You're eating matzah, you're a slave. You're eating mara, ugh, you're a slave. And then you're sitting there, and you're leaning, and you're drinking wine, and you're a king. What do you want me to be tonight? What's my act, God? What do you want me to be? You want me to be a king? Or you want me to be a slave? If I'm a slave, I'm not a king. If I'm a king, I'm not a slave. What's going on over here, Pesach night? It's very, it mixes you up. What do you want me to be here? What's the act? What are we supposed to do? Pesach night, am I supposed to be a king? Or am I supposed to, and not only that, what's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is that you have to make a sandwich in the times of the Beis HaMikdash. And the sandwich was matzah and marar and karm Pesach. Karm Pesach is freedom. Matzah and Mara is Avdus, is slavery. And you made them all, and Hillel said, you gotta eat them all together in a sandwich. What's that all about? Okay, so I'm gonna explain to you what, 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 what this is all about. There's a story I'm gonna to say tonight. It's one of my favorite stories. It's not on TorahAnytime.com yet. And, um, I actually wanted this to be turned into a play, which I'm hoping one day it will, because it's a, it's an amazing, amazing story. And it really explains to us, some of the guys have heard it already, but every time I say it, it comes out different anyway. Um, but it's, it's really an amazing story, and it, gi- it gives us a really an understanding of, of what Pesach is. But let me just explain to you a little bit about the crumbs, about, about, the, about the chametz. So what we're going to learn, Mitzvah, in the next two weeks, not this week, but in the next two weeks, we're going to learn all about that the Seder, when we come to the Seder, we are getting engaged. Except we're the kala. We're the bride. The whole from Men, women, everybody, children. Everybody's at the Seder. We're the bride, and God is the chassan. And there's a lot of 
different proofs to that at the Seder. Moshe Rabbeinu's name is not mentioned. He was the, he was the Shatchin, and the table has to be set for a king, which is also very unusual for Jewish people to take out all your silver and show it off. It's not what we do, right? But comes the night of Pesach, and you got to put all that silver out because the chassan is coming to the house, and it's called Leil Shimurim. Because the chassan takes care that no one's going to bother the kala. So it's a night that we don't have to say hamapel. It's a, it's a very, very holy, holy night. Now, chametz represents what's called sa'ar shebi'isa. The sourdough in the dough. The, the yeast in the dough, so to say. Chametz represents the satan. Chametz represents the yetzahara. <laughs> Before we can become the chosan, the kala of Hashem, we need to clean out our averos. Listen carefully. <coughs> we need to clean out all our averos from inside our heart, from everywhere, in order that we can be on the level of being a kala for our Kodesh Baruch Hu. Now, the normal way that we do this is Yom Kippur. Well, I gotta go, I gotta go clean breadcrumbs. Yom Kippur, I stand there, and I fast, and I cry, and I do tshuva, right? And therefore, I am ready. After Yom Kippur, why don't we get married? Why don't we get, why don't we get engaged to Hashem after Yom Kippur? I'm in the holiest state that I am. And the answer is no. You can, you can hit a holier state on Pesach. What do I mean? Yom Kippur is totally spiritual. You don't eat. You don't drink. You don't wear shoes. There's no physical acts of any pleasure whatsoever allowed on Yom Kippur. So you're disconnected from the physical world on Yom Kippur, and you feel it. There's no enjoyment at all. You can't even wear shoes. You can't be with your wife. You can't eat. You can't drink. There's no physical whatsoever on Yom Kippur. Pesach is a very deep, what I'm telling you, it's a very deep subject, but it's very understandable. On Pesach, what we do is, we connect the physical world with the spiritual world. Which means, that on Pesach, and this the Kava Yosha says very clearly, that on Pesach, when a person cleans the chametz in the physical world, and the chametz in the physical world is the bread, is the which makes the bread rise because to do an Avera in every Avera that a person does there's Gaiva there's a, he's a big shot a little bit of a big shot because if you really thought you were a worm if you really understood that you come from nothing and you're going to nothing and God gave you life and who am I then how could I sin against that, per, that, that being so in every Avera that a person does, there's a little gaiva, like, hey, you know, you're God and I'm me. And if I want to have a little fun, we have a little fun. But a person who's an unov, a person who's totally modest, right, and doesn't hold himself to be anything, he would never sin to Hashem. So in the bread, in the bread, in the Avera that everyone does, there is a sa'ar, there is, a, there is a, this gaiva. We take that away on Pesach. Pesach is matzah. Matzah has no gaiva. It never rose. It's made out of water and flour. There's no eggs. And there's no yeast. And there's no sugar. And there's nothing else in it. It's the most plain, cheap ingredient. Well, today nothing's cheap. But it's the most plain, cheap ingredients that exist. So therefore, the Kabbalah says that when you clean for Pesach, 
and you're vacuuming those crumbs, you should say it's filler. And you should say Hashem, just like I'm getting rid of the crumbs in the physical world, you should help me get rid of the crumbs in the spiritual world. So, in this world, there's a mirror. And everything you do in the physical world is done in the spiritual world. You do an Avera here, it's done there. You do a mitzvah here, it's done there. In Kippur, there's no mirror. There's no reflection from this world to that world. It's all that world. Comes Pesach, and Hashem says that you need to do acts in the physical world which will react in the spiritual world, which will bring you to the level that you can get engaged to me on Pesach night. So when a person cleans for Pesach, and of course that's why the Yetz Sahara today makes sure that none of us clean for Pesach. You hire 14 maids, you take your car to the car wash guy, come on, let's face it, right? You give him 50 bucks, he vacuums your car, right? He waxes your car. Who cleans for Pesach anymore? You call the carpet guy, he comes in with his big machine, he does all the carpets in your house, the girl, the guy that cleans up the, you know, everything else, and, and we don't have to do anything. Or you just sell the whole house and you, and you go to uh, Florida. Not I'm knocking that. Yes, I am knocking that. But, but, if you do that, then clean someone else's house. Go to your grandmother's house, go to an uncle's house. The reason the Eight Sahara did this is because if you don't do any act in the physical world to clean up the physical world from the Chametz, then you're not going to get that hashbah into your neshama. Therefore, all of a sudden, the Jewish nation doesn't have to clean for Pesach anymore. Not only that, I was in Eichlitz in Borough Park this week, so there's a minig that you hide ten pieces of bread on Badikas Chametz at night, right? This year we do it Thursday night, because you can't do it Friday night. We do it Thursday night. So I walk into Eichlitz, it's got this big bin, right, of little of plastic bags, and in the plastic bags are ten pieces of bread each one in its own bag. And they're selling it for, I don't know, dollar ninety nine or maybe a little bit more, whatever it is. And I'm thinking to myself, a person can't go take a piece of bread, 10 pieces, and put them in a little plastic bag? You, you need these people to do it? And the answer is, the Yitzhahara wants to make sure we do nothing for Pesach. Landau's in Borough Park, it's, a, it's a, a supermarket. I went last year to buy some uh, romaine lettuce, and they have salt water, salt water, selling it for 99 cents in a little jar. You mean people can't go home, take some hot water, put some salt in it? No. People walk in, charosis is made, matzah is made, mara is pre-made already also. Now they grind it for you. You don't got to grind it by hand. It's all pre-ground. You don't got to do nothing. Right? Why? Why? Because every drop of work that you do for Pesach fixes a part of you, of your neshama. Not only that, he says something amazing. He says that all the sweat that a person sweats when he cleans for Pesach, by Hashem is considered tears. Could you imagine? Some of us don't know how to cry. We can't cry. We don't have it. We just don't know how to cry to Hashem. A lot of people in this room have never cried, never had water coming down their face, dripping off their chin. So you don't know how to cry to Hashem. So the Kavayosha says that if you clean up and you work and you schwitz and you go in your car and you clean and you vacuum and you schlep, or every bead of sweat that's on your forehead, that's on your face, by Hashem is considered a tear. So you have to make sure that we don't do anything. We give it to the car wash guy, we do everything, we do everything, we don't have to do everything. And it's a very big mistake because there's a very big secret here. Because in your cleaning, in your cleaning, at the same time you're cleaning in the physical world, you're actually cleaning in the spiritual world. You're cleaning yourself. It's so major. 
And, and that's why guys have to jump in. You have to help. So if you don't have, if you're going away, whatever it is, and help a poor person or help a person who needs help. There's a lot of people out there that have 12 kids. They don't have money for maids or whatever it is. If you would go and knock on the door and say, listen, you're two cars. It's on me and my friends. We're going to clean it out so well. It's, um, they'll, 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 they'll bow down to you. They'll like, forget about it. So th- this is a very big mitzvah that we need to chop around. Because the cleaning for Pesach is, is that the, he says the Kaviyosha is actually cleaning your soul. Everything. That's why we do Bedikas Chametz. Why do I have to do Bedikas Chametz? I clean my house. I know there's no Chametz in my house. And you're not allowed to use a flashlight. And you're not allowed to use a light. You have to use a nair. You have to use a candle. You have to go into every single corner. Because the Yitzhar is like a cancer. If you leave one cell, right, you leave one drop, he's going to spread. So we go with a nair. Nair is a representation of a person's neshama, representation of the Torah. And you're supposed to go look through your house. Your house is you. Bias. Your bias inside of you is your neshama. So Vedika's chametz is not just going running around your house with a stupid candle. Do it in five seconds. It's going into your house, into yourself, and going with a candle, and not just turning on a light, because when you turn on a light, you don't see everything. And going into every crack, into every little part of yourself. Am I a jealous person? Am I an angry person? Do I appreciate people? And going into every meter with this little candle and spending a couple of hours. So again, so, so that's spiritual. So since Pesach is a physical, a physical holiday that affects your spirituality, so we have a mitzvah b'dikas chametz. We go through every single room. When you go through every single room, then... It's like going through every room in your, in your neshama. And maybe that's why you gotta hide ten pieces of, of, of bread. If I don't have bread in my house, why am I putting out bread? Because everybody has bread in there. Everybody has chametz in the neshama. So a guy who says, I don't gotta check myself out. I'm perfect. I don't have any problems in my neshama. You should know that there's ten pieces of bread in that neshama. Don't think for a minute that a person can be so pure that there's nothing in there. You gotta go look. And if you don't find all ten pieces, it's a very big panic. My kids write down where they hide it. Because imagine you put out ten pieces of bread and you find eight. How, do you, how are you going to go into Pesach? You're in big trouble, right? So, therefore, a person has to go inside himself. And this is a self-introspection that I spoke about last, last week. And it's so important. I, I got so many good emails. I got a lot of good emails that people went into themselves and they went to look to find out who they are. And, and that is a very, very important point. We need to do that. That's the whole thing of Pesach, of cleaning and looking and, 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 and checking. That, that's why a person's life, I tried to explain it last week, you're, the most important thing, the most precious thing that a person has in this world is your own life. And if a person would realize what he has, he would be jumping for joy all day long. He made brachas all day. Imagine chas v'sham, you should never, ever, 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 ever know of it. Guy goes to a doctor... And they do a, you have the feel, you have the headache. Right? You have the headache, they do a CAT scan. Doctor calls him to the room, says, Mister, I gotta be very honest with you, God forbid, you have cancer, it's all over your brain. From what I see, you got a week, a week and three days to live. I'm really, really sorry, there's no use, we can't operate on your brain. The chemotherapy is too late, you're stage four. I'm really, really sorry. Guy, Knowing, I mean, you should never hear it. No one should ever hear it. But what do you do with that? Like, like, you're done. You're finished. You're broken. And the guy doesn't know should he tell his wife. He has a week and three days, a week maybe, right? And it's going to be a very painful death, he tells him. You're going to have crazy headaches. We're going to put you on morphine. I mean, there's nothing we can do for you. He goes and he's broken. It's over. Stage four. It's gone. He's done. He comes home, right? Should he tell his wife? Should he call his kids? But he doesn't want, maybe he shouldn't tell them. 
He doesn't know what to do. The phone rings. Picks it up. Hi, this is this Mr. So-and-so? Yes, hi, this is the hospital. The doctor wants to talk to you. So, oh, my God, now what? I have two days. Get someone to the doctor. The doctor says, Mr. So-and-so, I don't even know how to apologize to you. We read the wrong scan. It wasn't you. There's nobody in this room could, that could even, and should never know, could even understand what that feeling will be. That cool? It's the wrong scan? You mean, I'm, no, and, and, and I read your scan. You're, 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 the reason you have these headaches is you have a sinus problem, and I, and I prescribed you some antibiotics. You should be okay in two weeks. The guy starts dancing and jumping. His wife doesn't know what happened. His kids don't know what happened. The place is freaking out, right? He's crazy. He's going crazy. That's the value of life. So if you think about that story and how that person would feel about it, that's the value of life. Every single morning you wake up, Hashem gives you life back. Your neshama goes away. You say, Hashem, please give me my life back. They make a phone call to you in the morning. Your eyes won't open up. Hello? Uh, cat scan, I'm sorry. Uh, you know that neshama that was up here last night? Uh, we're not keeping it. It's back. You got it back. You can live another day. Should we get out of your bed? You should start dancing. Last night they took my neshama. This morning they gave it back. Well, Daddy. But we don't appreciate life. Until Chatzashem we're told that we're going to lose our life. We don't appreciate life. And that is the Yetzirah. And that is his power. And I'll explain to you a little bit how that happens. The, the Mitzrayim were very much... There's a Pasuk in the Torah that says, you're not allowed to follow in the ways of the Mitzrayim. I'm not going to get into what that means, but they were extremely immoral. The one, of the, one of the three things that were the way of the Mitzrayim is that the women in Mitzrayim used to marry more than one husband. So they never knew where the children came from, because they didn't have one husband. And there were other terrible, immoral averas that were done in, in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was an extremely immoral place, a place of physical pleasure. The Greeks which Western civilization, where we live in America, is really based on the Greek Empire and, Greek, and, and their philosophy, was very much into physical beauty and physical power. Hercules, Venus, Zeus, all their different gods were all physical gods. Very physical gods. They were very into fun, Olympics, sports, Discus throwing. This was all Greek. America, the Western world, followed this and took on the beauty. You know, People Magazine comes out every year with the 50 most beautiful people. And everybody buys it. They want to see the 50 most beautiful people. How do you translate the most beautiful people? A beautiful person is a person who is kind and nice and sweet and thoughtful and caring and if you'd ever look at those 50 people that are in that magazine of who are the 50 most beautiful people, these are people who are actors and actresses, abuse, abuse drug addicts. Half of them are in, are in jail for all types of different kinds of things. But in America, the 50 most beautiful people has, all has to do with what Western civilization, what the Greeks decided, what's beautiful, skinny, tall, blonde, whatever, whatever they decided is beautiful, that came from the Greeks. That's what's from the Greeks. That's, that was their thing. And our civilization today is based on that, totally. Sports, it's the biggest thing. 
What makes more money than sports? Beauty, beauty pageants, the Olympics is coming up, right? Chinese are killing the guys from Tibet, you know, they're hanging them and killing them and shooting them. But you know what? The Olympics are coming. And the torch, the torch, and it went around the whole world. And, and you get a gold medal. And, and, and the most watched uh, any sport event in the world are the Olympics. I don't know, 580 million people. I don't know, like a crazy amount of people are watching the Olympics. And if you really think about it, what are you watching? What are you watching? I'm watching a soccer game? Guy kicks the ball, goes into the net, and they scream, Go! And Israel lost a Go! Right? Now, the word goal means you're driving towards a goal. There's a reason for what you're doing. Now, the ball is in the net. What's the goal? Now what? They take the ball back out of the net, and they try to get it in again. But you got it in already once. So we know you can get it past the goalie. So what are you trying to prove? So what are you proving? So if you get to the basis of sports, I don't want to rip sports. I love sports, right? But if you get to the basis of sports, it's an absolute shtus. And the interesting part is the Olympics, you can't be a professional. To be in the Olympics, you can't be a professional. Now that's brilliant. Why is that brilliant? Because the Greeks understood, right? They didn't pay their athletes. The Greeks understood that if there's money at the end of the line, right? No, the people who are watching will not enjoy it as much. Because if there's a goal to what the person's doing, he's trying to make a, a certain amount of money, right? Then it's a job. If it's a job, we're not interested. When the man, I was a young boy, when man landed on the moon. Now, we were racing the Russians to who gets there first. But once they landed on the moon, they said, okay, now what? Right? They went again, supposedly. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But we never went again. We never went again. But if they would have said that there's oil on the moon, and America is going to the moon to get oil, nobody would have watched it. Because it would have just been a business thing. Who cares? Am I going to get money from that oil? Am I going to get anything from that? No. So I'm not interested. It's a business trip. A bunch of astronauts going on a business trip to the moon. Why did America, why did we go crazy as kids? Because there was no reason for them to go to the moon. There was nothing there for them. And they said beforehand that there's nothing there. They knew there was nothing there. Right? So this was a race. A race? Nobody's getting paid. It's a race? That I'm, that I'm interested in because that's not a job. So what happens is in sports... In sports, if you're not paid, that's why we love sports and we love to have fun and we love to play because we don't get paid. The guys who are getting paid, most of them don't even love the game anymore after a year or two. They're getting paid. It's a job. So the, the, the Olympics, which is the Greek empire, is only for people who are not getting paid. Because if they were getting paid, half of us wouldn't watch it. Oh, sure, they're making a living. They don't watch me make a living. I don't got to watch them make a living. That's the basis of Western civilization. That's why fun is so huge. Now, that's why you watch sports. Why do you play sports? Why does a guy my age, 50 years old, right? Make sure when I get into shape, right, in the mountains. I go out every Friday, and I play, I play two, three hours of basketball. Now, I'm a, I'm a 50-year-old guy, and, you know, you should live to 120, but you're 50 years, you're 50, you're 50 years old. Rabbi Wallerstein, why are you playing ball? You, you're, you're a mature person. You give speeches to guys and girls. You look stupid taking this orange thing, bouncing it up and down, 
and throwing it into a little hole and then jumping up and down and saying, yeah! You know, a lot of very not smart people that can do it a lot better than you. So why are you wasting your time? So if you say, because I want to be in shape, you want to be in shape, so exercise, go on, go on, you know, run. Why are you playing ball? You have, you have CEOs of huge companies, brilliant people, right? And if you had a bunch of Martians land on Earth and they would say, where are all the rich people? Come, we'll show you. And you go out to this place, it's about 15 acres, and the Martians are watching this, and you see these men, CEOs of huge companies, now it's of course the Jewish guys, now all the young guys, yeah, they're all, they're, they want to learn how to play golf, because because they're rich people know how to play golf, so I need to play golf. So he's imagining that when he's on the golf course, even though he can't pay the rent, but he's on the golf course, and he has his golf clubs from the big company, that he's like the other guy, even though... He, his friend has to pay for him to play on the golf course. But he's ready. So now, the Martians come down, and they see these multi-billionaires. They want to see what they do. And here they are with a stick and a little teeny white ball, right? And they say, so what's the objective of the game? The objective of the game is to stand 500 feet or 500 yards from that little hole and somehow, sooner or later, get that ball in the hole. Now, if anyone in this room would think about this for a moment, you would say there's something very wrong with these people. I understand the challenges in business. The guy's making millions and deals, and he's working this out, he's getting up at 6 o'clock, and he's flying to China on his private jet, and it's a deal, and I understand. He's making money. He, none of them are getting play, paid to play golf, and if, and if they can only get a, a... I have friends. They can only get a, what's it called, a time to play, because it's very busy. At 5.30 in the morning in the summer, these guys are up. You can't get them up for anything in the world. So what's wrong with them? Why, why are, is it so important for them to take this little ball and put it into a hole? And the answer is because they feel during that time, they, they begin to find out who they are. Because when they're working, it's a job. When it's a job, you don't get to find out who you are. When you're playing ball, right, and you, and you win, it's like, I got a good outside shot. I know how to pass the ball. I see the court. I'm a good golfer. I'm a good hockey player. I'm a good this. I'm a good that. You begin to find who you are through playing because when you're playing, it's not a job. And when it's not a job, you can start thinking about what you're doing. So whatever sport you play, if you're good at it, if you're not good at it, you're not going to play it for long. It's the way it is. It's the ones who are good at it that play. The other guys will play for five minutes and after a while they won't come back anymore. So when a person is not busy, <clears throat> when a person has time to play, he finds out a lot more about himself, and he also likes to win. If you pay me to play golf, I'm not playing golf. Because then I'm not finding anything about myself. I'm working. I'm working to make food so that I can eat, so that I can sleep, so I can go back to work. We know that whole routine. So, that's the world of fun. And the Greeks are, are this Western civilization is very anti the Greeks were very anti, they wanted to destroy us on Hanukkah, very anti the Jewish religion. And the question is why? We, we don't have golf, and we don't have hockey, and we don't have basketball. You open up a chumash, it doesn't say anything here about, we can't beat you guys in golf, we can't be, we're not the most beautiful nation in the world, so we're not going to Miss Universe, right? We're most, most of us, most Jewish guys are not weightlifters, right? So physically, <laughs> they're twice our size, right? So what bothered the Greeks about us? You know, Esav hates us, right? Esav's saying as Yaakov. But they don't live in that hate. They're not busy trying to figure out how to 
spiritually destroy the Jews. They want to just chop your head off, like, like the Holocaust. But the Greeks weren't interested in chopping our heads off. The Greeks and the American civilization and the whole Western civilization is not interested in killing the Jew. They're interested in us assimilating and becoming like them. What do they want from us? What are you jealous of? What do we have? What's our fun? What do the Jews have that's our fun? We're busy with their fun. What are you jealous of? I have nothing in common with you. I have nothing in common with you. We're not the most beautiful nation. We're not the strongest nation. We're not the best ball players. What do you want from us? And the answer is that they see something that we don't see. They, they see the fun and the beauty in being a Jew. And therefore, they see competition to what they have. We don't see that. But they see that. They see, and, and that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight, that in Mitzrayim, what got us out of Mitzrayim were three things. That we didn't change our clothing. Now, don't take that wrong. When I said that in my class, the guy says, hundreds of years, and they didn't change their clothing? Really? How'd they, how'd they go next to each other? I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what it means. It means that we didn't wear diesel. We didn't wear their clothing. And we didn't talk their 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 language. We spoke Lashon HaKodesh. And we didn't name our children or name each other by Egyptian names. Those three things kept Klai Yisrael from becoming part of Mitzrayim. That's what separated us. And if you really look at it, the, the, the clothing, right? So the name of a person is, his, is, is who you are. The, the language is the nation. In other words, the French speak French, the English speak English, we speak, uh, South America speaks Portuguese, the Jews speak Hebrew, right? So that's the nation. The clothing is the whole hemisphere. In other words, the whole world goes to France to see what's in style. So the clothing is the whole world. The language is the country, specifically the country. And the names is the person themselves. Those three things kept us different. And today, what we're in right now, the assimilation that we're in, that we got a hookah, because the Arabs hookah, so we got a hookah. We got we to we gotta do whatever they do, we have to follow them. You know, you make a barbecue, you got to have scotch tasting. We're, we're, barbecue have a scotch tasting. You have to have scotch tasting. Because the guy has scotch tasting, so the guy has have scotch tasting. The Jews have to have scotch tasting. Whatever they do, we have to do. What happened in Mitzrayim is that there were three things that we kept that we were different. Number one was our language. Now, you can't ask, you could ask, but you, you can't really ask every Jewish guy to speak Ivrit in America. So what does it mean that we shouldn't, we should keep our language. And the answer is that a Jew has to talk different. So talk different. I was standing at Matzah Shabbos with a bunch of guys, Jewish guys, from guys, and they were smoking. And I guess, I don't know about this, but I guess if you smoke, you got to spit afterwards? I don't know. Probably got a taste in your mouth of tobacco. So after they smoke, they like, and it's not that you don't just spit. It's not like spitting your phlegm. It's like a stream. You know, like a stream of water that comes out. Like that seems to be very cool. Because like one guy finished, he went, you know like that, and then the guy next to him went, like that, and the other guy like, and I'm staring at him like, he goes, oh no, not like that, don't do it like that, that's, no, no, you can't do it like that, that's the wrong stuff, and I'm like, what are you doing, right, and the truth is, take a drive, 125th Street, you know, off the SDR Drive, and park, and you'll see exactly the same thing, so, so here you have Jewish kids, right, 
and they're spinning. And then I won't even go to the place where they're spinning across the street, and they want to see how far they spin. Where, where does that, where does that, what does that have to do with our, who, where? Who would you see do that? Your mother, your father? Your father spits, your mother spits, your Rosh Hashiva spits, your Rebbe spits. Where, where do you see that? Where do you see that? I'm, I, I said to him, what are you doing? He says, what's wrong with spinning? He doesn't understand, what's wrong with spinning? We're supposed to spin in shul when you say, right, that we, they, they, they bow down to Hevel and Rick, so the Anusachari, the Lubavitch guys, they spit on the floor. The Israeli, the, the Yerushalmi, they spit on the floor. He's got to sit in the Mamish look. I go him. So I wanted to say that I think what it means is, I, I think what the, what the object is, that a person should be at a point where if he has no yarmulke on, and no tzitzes, and no beard, right, that a person should look at him, a non-Jew should look at him and say he's Jewish. He's not wearing a yarmulke, he's not wearing tzitzes, and he doesn't have a beard. There's nothing, just looking at a person, the way he stands, and the way he thanks people, and the way he talks, and the way he acts, and the way he dresses, you understand? <laughs> Guys, that I'm dealing with, I met a boy this week, and I thought that, I thought that style was over already, right? With the pants that, that the pockets are down by your knees. Like, I'm like, what are you doing? You put your wallet, how do you get your wallet out of there? Like, man, that's like a crazy thing. And then, and then, and then, and then the underwear is showing. The pants are halfway down and then the under, the boxes are halfway up. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, what are you, Krebby? Come on. This is it. This is, this is the black culture. This is, you got, you're under, your, your, your boxes have to be showing. Your pants have to be down. And you, you can't stop and have regular pants because there's special pants that do that, right? And I'm saying to myself, here in Mitzrayim, we got our Mitzrayim, they didn't change their clothing. And here, these guys, right, what are you doing? So, so, what is, I didn't read what it says on the boxes. <laughs> and get that close. Once I saw that, I was like, yeah, hey, you know, but, but, but seriously, so, so what is this? This is that we want to be like them. We want to wear their clothing. We want to talk like them. Even the talking, when a person talks, when a Jewish person talks, if you ever went to a tzaddik and you talk to him, he talks softly. And there's no curse, no curse words. There are girls, there are Jewish girls that, that curse like, like drunken sailors. And wh- what is that? What is that? You know, I, I said this a couple of years ago. You know, I had, I had, a, you know, I don't know if we should be at Torah anytime with this word or whatever. Um, but he likes when I say these things. I got up in eighth grade. The eighth grade rabbi. So my job was to um, to get boys in eighth grade to go to Yeshiva High School. Now I teach I teach kids that are not religious. So many of the parents send them to Yeshiva Elementary School because the parents work. So in elementary school, we pick the kids up at seven thirty and they get home at five. So those those people work right, and they're, and, and and therefore they come home. Their kids, you know, they, they're home before their kids. So they do like they work from eight to four. These people. So they send their kids to Yeshiva because there's no one that's going to watch the kid. But once there's high school, the kids are old enough to come home from high school, no one has to be home. So they're not interested in sending their kids to Yeshiva. They want to send them to public school. So my job was to get up December, talk to the parents, scare them about public school, and get them to go to Yeshiva. So a few years ago, I'm giving this whole schmooze, right? And I said they have to go to Yeshiva, and it's very important. And I had a certain Yeshiva I wanted to send them to. And the guy, one of the guys that was sitting was a real... And he said, um, that's an all boys yeshiva. I said, yeah, so? He said, sure. My kid's going to grow up to be, you know, weird. <laughs> <laughs> so now you got this whole room of, of people sitting there. And I got to answer back. Because if we're just going to leave it like that, these kids aren't going to yeshiva. So 
I said the following. I said, you know, we'll use the word weird. There are a lot more weird people out there than were in my day. That's for sure. Why? Why do you think? I said, I'll tell you the truth. My opinion. First of all, I told him, I said, I'll tell you the truth. I said, um, I said, I have to tell you guys a story. He says, yeah. I said, I went to the village. I said, I went to the village one day. There was a bar there called Badlands. Total weird bar, right? Only, <laughs> only weird people in that bar. I said, and I walked in there, and I went straight up to the bar, and I stood up on the bar, and I said, anyone that's in this bar tonight, it was Saturday night, it was packed. Anyone that's in this bar tonight that went to yeshiva, raise your hand. I said, how many people do you think raised your hand? Not one. So I said, excuse me, mister, to this guy that was sitting there. I said, excuse me, mister, where did all these weird people go to school? They went to public school with girls. So don't give me that you're worried about your son going to a boy's yeshiva, learning Torah, that he's going to end up weird. Just the opposite. So he was quiet. Now, of course, I never went to Badlands. All right. I'm not that crazy. But in theory, if I went to Badlands, how many people would get up? None. So that was the story I told. But I want to tell you something. And I tell this to the girls. The, my opinion of why the world is going that way, in a very big way, Nebuch, and it's, it's a mushchis, and it's destroying the world in many different ways. If you want to know why there's global warming and all the other things in the world, it's very, very specific that that Avera will destroy this world physically, not just spiritually. Hashem, And that is huge Avera today that's going on in the world, all over the place. And I'll tell you where I blame it. I blame it that the women of today, the women of the last generation, the public school girl is not a woman anymore. She looks like a man. She dresses in pants. She dresses like a man. She spits like a man. She smokes like a man. She curses like a man. Right? So the femininity of the world, a lady, royalty, what used to be a feminine, a woman... Is being destroyed totally. So Manashtana. You can laugh all you want. Manashtana. The guy's going to public school. She curses like a guy anyway. Right? She plays football like a guy anyway. So, so what's the difference? So the whole, the whole femininity of the world is being totally destroyed. The Goyim are totally destroying it. They want equal rights. You want equal rights, so then you're equal. So then, so then, you know, and Asani Kitsano, and and the modern, the modern reform Judaism wants the same thing. They want the woman rabbi, and the woman mayel, and the woman and, and the woman mashkiach, and the woman chazan, and the woman everything. They want to destroy also. They don't. They want to take the woman out of Yiddishkeit. And I'm telling you something. You know what they're jealous of? You know what the Greeks are jealous of, and what the what the Egyptians were jealous of. Go to the wedding that I went to tonight, and look under the chuppah at a Jewish boy standing and a Jewish girl standing. There's no such thing in their world. There's no such thing in their world. They stand under a chuppah. You see two holy people, full of chen, 
The beauty is, is amazing. You go to a wedding, you just watch the two. It's amazing. Everyone's besimcha. Everybody's happy. We have no problem separate dancing with the guys dancing with the, with the chassan and the girls dancing with the kala. And you don't even know how many people who are not religious have become religious from that. How many weddings that I've gone to that the irreligious people who came who wanted mixed dancing and the whole situation saw this. And after the wedding said, I want this. Guys who said, Wallstein, I, I don't know who you are, but could you, like, can I come to your shir? I, I want this by my wedding. Because what does an irreligious wedding look like? There's no chuppah, right? They say, will you take this one? Right? Now you may, you may kiss the bride. And the two of them, the most private thing that exists in the world, which is a kiss, the most private thing the Zayar talks about, talks about, there's nothing more private than two people kissing each other in public for 15 minutes. <laughs> and everybody's standing there. Clapping. <laughs> that is disgusting. And even they think it's disgusting. And then what happens? Then what happens? Everybody starts, everybody dances. And the bride and the groom dance. And nobody has anything to do with them. I've been by this. Okay? Nobody has anything to do with them. Everybody dances with their wife, their girlfriend, their girl, wife's girlfriend, whatever. Whatever, <laughs> whatever they're dancing with. Whatever they're dancing with, right? And the chasen and kawa, we'll call them chasen and kawa. Nobody has anything to do with them. Nobody is dressed. Everybody gets drunk. There's no chain. There's no beauty. There's no da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. When you got a hundred guys jumping up and down with the chassan, there's none of it. The guys, they're just happy to go to the wedding. They get a free meal, right? And a free bar. It's the first thing they walk in the bar. Oh, free bar. And if he gives out cigars, they need to tie the gold together. So they have cigars and a free bar, and that's it. So now what happens? And that's the goyim. That's, that, that's their world. That's their wedding. When they come to my, I have business. When they came to my daughter's wedding, the non-Jews, they were in awe. They were in awe. Guys, jumping like that, and then they go to the kawa, and the way they, and the way they, the way they dance, the girls, they dance sneeistic, they're in awe. They are jealous of the Jews who didn't change their language. They are jealous of the Jews who didn't change their clothing. They are jealous of the Jews who didn't change their name. Yisrael, Yoshakel, who we are. Chayim, Maishi. Yeah, it's a big thing. My father, Lashon, changed his name a few years before he died. He hated his non-Jewish name. He went to a, a judge with a lawyer, and he changed his name to Yitzchak. Because he wanted to be called by his Jewish name. He wasn't embarrassed to be called by his Jewish name. Goyim are not embarrassed by being called by their, by their not-Jewish names. So a person's name, you're part of Klai Yisrael. I'm not embarrassed who I am. I don't hide my yarmulke. Who, what, what guys get, they, they, they have to put their yarmulke because they, they work in a big firm. So they have to put their yarmulkes in their pocket. So you, you wouldn't have gotten out of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, they didn't take their yarmulkes off. They were getting beat. They didn't take their yarmulkes off. They didn't take their tits off. They didn't change their clothing. You wouldn't have gotten out of Mitzrayim. And your language, if you don't use Jewish language, which means a person talks nicely, without yelling, Without cursing, without spitting, right? You wouldn't have gotten out of Mitzrayim. So we're here, and instead of being different, we are continuously running after being the same. And when it comes to Pesach, I told you this: freedom is saying no. Cheres we got in Mitzrayim is saying no. I don't want to be part of this culture. I want to be part of my culture. I want to be a Jew. They are jealous of our chain. They are jealous that we dress differently. The black suit and the white shirt and the tie 
They are jealous of. But guess what? The, when you go to a business meeting, and it's a multi-billion dollar business meeting, you've got to put on the suit and the tie and the shirt. Why? Because that's respectful dressing. I, I deal with Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble, there's one day a week that they can dress Friday casual. The rest of the week, you've got to be dressed in a suit. Because it's a company. We're also a company. We're also a company. We're also representing something. So the black, sh the white shirt and the suit, which everyone's trying to get rid of, even by the non-Jewish people, that means you're real. The lawyer, when he comes into the court, if he wears jeans, the judge throws him out. Can't be a lawyer in a court in jeans. And if the pilot would get on your plane on your way to Florida, right, in jet blue and a pair of shorts and a kind of T-shirt and his hat backwards with dreadlocks, you'll roast that plane and so are all 300 people. But you're not flying with him because the pilot wears a suit with a white shirt because he represents, he's a pilot, he works for a company. So in Mitzrayim, the Jews, and that's what saved us, we were surrounded by, the, by worse than what you have here today, by worse than what's going on in America. But we stayed different. How did we stay different? We stayed a different entity. We stayed a different entity by those three things. That's why the Zoyah, that's why the Medrash says that in Mitzrayim we were like an Ubar. We were like a, um, a fetus in Mitzrayim's belly. Because the fetus is in the mother, but it's not the mother. It's a separate entity. And as the fetus grows, we know that the fetus will one day be separate from the mother. Because if it goes past nine months, right? If it goes 10 months, 11 months, it's going to die. You can't keep the fetus. In, in, when it's time to go, it's time to go. Kleisro, when it hit Chatzois that day, that was the ninth month. That's when they had to go. That's when the fetus had to leave the mother. How did we not become part of the mother? By these three things. By these three things, that's what kept us separate. By dressing differently. Now, I'm not telling you all to go out tomorrow and buy a suit and a white shirt. That's, that's not what I'm saying over here. But there's a certain way of dressing. A certain way of dressing with respect. And a person comes to shul, he has to dress with respect. When you go to Dab and Mincha in Landau's, you can't come straight from playing ball in your shorts and your sandals without your socks on. You're coming into Akash Baruch house. You have to be dressed correctly. You've got to have a pair of pants in the car to put on. Because that's not the way you would go to a big business meeting. Well, guess what? Mincha is the biggest business meeting. Because what are you asking for at Mincha and Mayrav and Chakras? You're asking for life. So I'm not telling you you have to wear a white shirt. But you can't come in without socks on. You're not going to a big meeting in sandals without socks on. Yidl always says to me, should I, should I ask the people to leave who come without socks on to shul? I'm like, once they're here, they're here. But you should maybe explain to them that this is not, this is not the beach. You're coming to talk to Hashem. I don't think you go to a big business. There are people who don't care. They'll go to a business meeting in sandals and fine. Then you can go with sandals. But if a processor, and, and, and that's why we wear a jacket by davening boys. The reason you put on a jacket by davening is because you're going to a business meeting. You're going to see Hashem. You're going to speak to Hashem. So we put on a jacket as an extra piece of clothes. Doesn't matter what kind of jacket. Doesn't matter if it matches your pants or not. That's not what's important. We put on a jacket because we're coming to Hashem and we're taking this very seriously. So we put on an extra piece of clothes. So the Chachamim said, people who always wear jackets, so you're not putting on an extra piece of clothes, so you wear a hat. So the regular people who wear jackets 
put on a black hat when they dive in, or put on any hat when they dive in, because you're supposed to put on an extra piece of cloth. And a person who always wears a black hat, and a person who always wears a jacket, so he puts on a gartel. He puts on that rope around his... That, the reason you wear a gartel is because it's an extra piece of cloth that you're putting on because you're meeting the chairman of the board. And you're having your interview. And when you're meeting the chairman of the board and you're having an interview, and the chairman of the board is the one who's going to give you life, you're going to put on that extra piece of clothing to show respect. And that's the whole reason you have a gato and a black hat and a jacket. That's what it's all about. To show Hashem the extra respect. And that is what saved us in Mitzrayim. That we did not become part of this culture. We have three weeks to sit Mitzvah Hashem in front of the chasm. When you sit in front of the chasm, you have to tell Hashem that I'm sitting in front of the chasan, and I didn't change the way I talk, or I needed to change, and I did change the way I talk, and I did change the way I look, and my name, you understand, again, you can't change your name, your name's Stephen, your name's uh, Bob, your name's Harry, right, you're not going to change it in three weeks, but you know what, you can start telling your friends, call me by my Hebrew name, because Hebrew name is a very holy thing, the Aleph base, right, the Hebrew language is the 22 letters that Hashem created the world with. So the power of using the, uh, the, the Hebrew language, the Washana Kodesh that was used in Mitzrayim, that gave us a lot of energy and a lot of power and kept us from being part of them. So when you daven, you daven a Lash Kodesh. Of course, if you can't read Hebrew, it's good enough to do it in English. But it's language. It's how a person talks. It's how you present yourself. If you're a Jewish kid, they're watching us because they're jealous of us. And they want to say they're no different than us because they don't want to come to a wedding and say that we're very different than them. But we are so different if we only understand who we are. We are so special and we are so different. But we are so used to being part of this whole chavra that we don't realize it. So in the next two weeks before Pesach, when you start to clean your chametz out, try to find something in you to make you a little bit different than the culture that we're living in. Whether it's spitting, Right? or smoking in a public place, or not opening a door for an older person, or being on your cell phone when you're, when you're dealing with other people and not even looking at them, right? Going to the store and talking on your cell phone when the lady's trying to tell you, um, I have your change, and you're like talking, or going to the bank. It, I'm telling you, I see it more and more and more. It's absolutely disgusting. And for a Jewish kid to do it with a yarmulkeon, it's absolutely a chil Hashem 100%. You go to these places and they're, they're non-Jewish people working and you're on your phone and what you're telling that person is you are unimportant. My phone call is more important. You tell your phone call, hold on two minutes, I'm in the bank, I'm talking to somebody. I'm in the store, I'm talking to somebody. You, you have to do that. It's, it's, it's just 100% wrong and we're, we're losing that whole metric kind. You have to concentrate on these things. Okay. Anyway, I want to tell you this story because this story is really the whole story of Pesach. And this will explain to us why we eat matzah, which is poor, and why we eat matzah, which is bitter, on the same night that we celebrate that we're kings. And the story goes like this. It's an amazing story. So a long, long, long time ago, there was a king and a queen. And the king and the queen had no children. And the kingdom was the most beautiful kingdom in the world. Happy people. Everybody was great. Everything was fantastic. But one thing was very bad, they had, no, they had no children, and they understood, all the people understood that if the king and queen die without any children, then someone else is going to become king and queen, and who knows how miserable they're going to be. So the whole land prayed that the queen should become pregnant. And finally, one day, she got the good news from the doctor that she's pregnant. And the whole kingdom 
was absolutely ecstatic and partying, and it was the biggest party that the queen became pregnant. Nope. Nine months later, nine months later, the queen gives birth. The queen gives birth, and she has a very, very beautiful little baby. I can't even explain to you. They went crazy. The, 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 the whole kingdom was like, the stock market was flying. Everything was flying. It was, it was, they had a child, and everyone understood that the king and queen are going to give this child a lot of time. And it was a little boy, and this little boy is going to grow up to be the next king, and he's going to treat him like David, and their grandchildren are going to have a good king. And it was just, it was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. Okay. This kid is like a year old, and all of a sudden he gets extremely sick. And nobody could figure out what, what disease he has. And they bring every doctor that you could imagine comes, and the king says, you have to help my son. And every day the kid gets sicker and sicker, and he starts to drift off into a coma. And the whole place is going crazy. Every nation is sending their doctor. He's a specialist, he's a specialist. And every doctor comes, nobody can help him. He's now in a deep coma. He's dying. The child is dying. Everybody's in Avelis. They're fasting. They're sitting on the floor. The, God gave the king a child, and now the child is gone. One person comes to the king. The king says, he says, I got to talk to you. He says, no, I have no time right now. My son's dying. Don't leave me alone. He says, no, I have to tell you something. The king says, what? He says, there's a very weird old man that lives in the woods. They call him the medicine man. He's a weirdo. But they say... He's got powers. You want me to go get him? And, and maybe he can help your son. He says, are you crazy? What are you waiting for? He says, the king, I know, but I'm just telling you, he's not, you know, none of the doctors listen to anything he has to say. He's weird. He's crazy. The king says, listen, all the doctors that are supposedly so brilliant didn't help him. Go right now to the woods with my soldiers. Don't give him a choice. And bring him back to the palace. Nope. They go into the woods. They had all these hermits living in a village. And they asked him, where's the medicine man? This, all the way at the end. In this little hut. They come to this little hut. They knock on the door. Yeah, what do you want? Leave me alone. We're here in the name of the king. He goes, I don't have a king. I live off the woods. We're here in the name of the king. And you have a king. And we're bringing you the king's son is sick. He says, you're not bringing me. And you're not taking me nowhere. And I have nothing to do with no king. And I don't care if his son is sick. Then these soldiers realize, this guy ain't going. But the man that told the king about it goes inside, and he says to the old medicine man, he says, can I talk to you for a minute? He says, listen, I understand that you're here, you're a hermit, you're away from everybody, but I have to tell you that this king is the nicest, sweetest king that has ever been a king in this land. If we lose his son, there's a bunch of other people that want that spot, and they are not good at all. So I'm begging you. I know you have nothing to do with civilization. I'm begging you just to give it a try. He says, you really mean this king is really a good guy? He says, I'm telling you, he's really a good guy. You'll meet him, you'll see. He says, okay, I'll give it a try. And he opens up his bag and he starts throwing in roots and plants and mosquito lava and all kinds of salamander blood, all kinds of weird stuff. This guy's watching him, he's like, oh man, this is definitely not going to help, but okay. Anyway, they come to the kingdom, and the place is ready. He's like in a deep coma, his fever's like 106, there's no way. And the minute the doctors who, this is competition to them, the minute the doctors see 
that this guy is there, they tell the king, are you crazy? If your son has any chance, if this guy even touches him, he's going to kill him. He's a weird, he's a crazy guy. We know him. He does crazy things. He does chants and all this stuff. What are you wasting your time? The king says, listen, you guys didn't do anything. Let's give him a chance. So this guy comes in. He's, he's got this long beard. It's all disheveled. His hair is all disheveled. He almost looks like a plant. You know what I mean? His, his clothing is all ripped. He, he, forget about it. Barefoot, short pants. You can imagine what he looked like. He comes in and... The king takes one look at him, and inside he's saying, all right, this guy, this, this is not going to help. But the queen says, listen, give him a chance. He walks into the room. He looks down at the child. He looks at his face. He goes, Psh, I haven't seen a child this sick in a very, very long time. But I think I could do something. But everyone has to get out of the room. The king says, uh-uh. That, I want to see what you're doing. He says, you can't. You can't see what I'm doing. Because if you see what I'm doing, you won't let me do it. So you just have to understand. Otherwise, I'm going back to the woods. No, 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 no. Don't go back to the woods. You got it. They have nothing to lose. The kid's mama's 10 minutes from death. So everyone's arguing. Everyone's screaming. Don't leave this kid with this guy. You're crazy king at the queen. He's going to kill her. The king says, everyone out of the room. Everybody goes out of the room. He opens his bag. And he has this medicine concoction. He puts it all together, all these crazy medicines. And the medicine is so bitter that the, the, a human being, Mamish, could not swallow this medicine. It was from bitter roots. It was so bitter, it was unbelievable. So he says, you know what? I'm going to take a little honey. I'm going to put a little honey in the medicine to make it a little less bitter. It can't take away the whole bitterness. And he opens the kid's mouth and he pours it down the kid's mouth by force. And the kid's got that, yeah, he's gagging, he's trying to spit it out in his, in his, in his stupor. And he forces him to swallow it. And he sits there for two days. And every half an hour, he gives him another teaspoon. And he holds his nose till he swallows it. And another teaspoon. And the kid's fighting, the kid's kicking, it's bitter. And he's fighting and he's kicking and he's fighting. And he keeps making him swallow it and he keeps making him swallow it. Anyway, they're knocking on the door. He says, you can't come in. After two days, the kid opens his eyes. The fever breaks, and he allows the king and queen to walk in. You could imagine when the king and queen walks in, it's like, right? They're, they're flying. He saved the kid. And the king says to him, anything you want, billions of dollars, gold coins, a house, uh, whatever you want. And the, 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 the medicine man looks at the king, he says, I don't need anything. I live in the woods, I live off the earth. But you know what? I like your son. I'm a little connected to him now. I just want permission to stay here for a few years and teach him all the knowledge I have of the woods. I'm going to take him into the woods once in a while. I want to teach him my knowledge. I'm an old man. Maybe he'll learn it. He'll be able to help the kingdom with, the, with his knowledge. The king says, of course. I'll make a room. He says, no, I don't want a room. I want to sleep in his room. Fine. No problem. He was a year old. He slept in his room, two years, three years old, four years old. He begins to teach him. And him and this kid are inseparable. The kid's all four years old. The other side, who hated the king, realized that if this kid grows up, they have no chance of getting into the kingdom. So they decide they're going to kidnap him. So one night, this whole chevre of robbers, this whole group of robbers, climbs up the wall, comes through the window, 
The kid's fast asleep. They put a little chloroform up his nose. They put him into a sack, right? And you got these big guys with swords and knives. And the old man is sitting in the corner. But he was a man of the woods, so you couldn't see him. He blended right into the darkness. And he saw what was going on. But he realized that if he screamed, they're going to kill the kid. So he decided, instead of screaming, he'll follow them. So they went back out the window, into a wagon. He jumped down, and he followed them. And they came to the seaport. And in the seaport, they had a boat waiting. And they took this little kid struggling in the sack, and they put him into this boat, and they went off. And they became very greedy. Their job was to kill this kid. They became very greedy. They said, we might as well make some money on this. So they send a letter to the king, and that they're the kidnappers, and they want a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And if he, if he sends that lot, a lot of money to this and this point, whatever it is, he'll let the kid go. So the king knew that his son, his child was kidnapped. And these guys took their boat, and they were going to go way out into the sea so that the king wouldn't be able to catch them. And they're going to wait and see what happens. Their mazel, they get attacked by pirates. These ganavim, these kidnappers get attacked by pirates. The pirates come on board. They kill everybody on board. They go down to the bottom of the ship, and there's a little kid down there. The old man is in the ship too, in a corner. He's just watching. He can't interfere because if he makes a move, him and the kid are going to be dead. He's just watching what's going on. The pirates come down. There's a little kid. They say to the kid, who are you? He's smart enough not to say he's the prince because then he's, he's going to be ransomed. He said, I just was a kid that, you know, got onto this boat with, the, with these guys. And we were going to an island somewhere. They said, yeah, you're going to an island. We're taking you to the West Indies. And we're selling you as a slave. That's how this trip goes. And the old man's watching. And they take him. And they bring him to the West Indies where they have the slave trade. And now they have this nice kid, right, young kid, and they put him up on the thing. And they start bidding, $100, $200, $500. Sitting at this bidding was a man and his son. His son, the same age. Listen carefully. Every part of the story is very connected. The man sitting there, and he has a young son. And he's thinking to himself, what better, what better thing can I do than buy a friend for my son? So everybody's bidding. This guy keeps bidding higher, 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 higher. And he buys this kid, the prince, to be a friend for his son. The problem is that his son was a miserable guy. And he was jealous that now there was another boy his age in the house. But he was a very smart boy. So he told his father, you want to make me happy? I want you to give, his father, he was a multimillionaire with a big mansion. I want you to take this boy. I don't want to, I'm not interested in having him as a friend. But you would make me very happy if you put him in the kitchen and you used him as kitchen help. That's what I want to see. I want to see him as a servant. And this little prince became a servant. Five years old, six years old, eight years old, ten years old, twelve years old, fifteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. And not only was he a servant, but his, his job was to clean all the filth and dirt after all the cooking, clean all the toilets in the house, right? And this boy would have an enjoyment watching this kid clean all the toilets, clean everything. He was never, his hair was disheveled. He looked like a piece of mud. He stunk, right? Because he was working in the kitchen like that. And this boy who was jealous of him decided, now I'm going to really get him. When he turned 21 years old, the prince, this boy said, now we're going to make him marry Bella. Now, Bella 
was a kitchen maid. Not someone you want to look at every day. I'm talking Hager the witch. I mean, I'm talking forget about it. But this poor prince belonged to them. And if they want him to marry, the law is he has to marry or else he's dead. So this boy went to his father and said, Dad, I have a shidduch. Let's have this boy, we'll call him Harry. Harry should marry Bella. His father said, come on. She's got one big tooth, right? Well, you can't, you know, you've been doing this to him. I was quiet all these years, but that, that, that's, you know. How could you put him? He's a skinny guy. She, hello, this is like, this is not going to, you know. How could you do this to him? He said, Dad, you want me to be happy? Let's make the wedding tomorrow night. So the father thought it would be pretty funny too. So he said, okay. They walk into the kitchen, and they say, Mazel tov, Bella! Tomorrow night you're getting married to Harry. She looks down at Harry. Wonderful. Very wonderful. He looks up at, at, up at her, and he goes, I, I can't believe this is happening to me. <laughs> he goes to his room that night, and he sits on the side of his bed. He totally doesn't remember the first five years of his life. Totally doesn't remember that he was the prince of a kingdom. He's a servant. He's a toilet cleaner. He's a bottle washer. He's the garbage man. And he sits at the edge of his bed and he says, I don't know who I am. And I don't know where I come from. But I can't marry this woman. And he begins to cry. And standing in the corner all those years is the old man. And he said, he comes out of the dark and of course this kid jumps. He says, who are you, an assassin? What are you? He says, you don't know who I am? You don't remember me? And he looks at this old man. He says, you look like a tree from the forest. What are you? He says, look at me. You don't remember me? He says, no, I don't remember you. And get out of my room. He says, you don't remember when I saved your life? He goes, no. He says, do you know who you are? He goes, no. He says, I'll tell you who you are. You're a prince. And this kid's like, yeah, and you're Michael Jordan. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm a prince. Prince? A prince in the toilet? A prince in the kitchen? What kind of prince? He says, no. You come from a kingdom far away, and you were kidnapped, and there were pirates, and you were sold. And he starts telling this kid this whole story, and the kid's sitting there he's laughing. Some idiot old man, some sugar comes into my room. I'm a toilet cleaner, and he's telling me I'm the prince of the biggest, of the biggest empire in the whole world. He says, "Old man, it's a very nice story, and if you want to come next week and tell me, you know, Cinderella, good, you can tell me Cinderella, but please leave my room." And the old man realizes that this kid remembers nothing about him, and nothing about being a prince. And he's about to get thrown out of the room, and he turns to the kid and he says, "Could I ask you one favor?" And the kid says, "What? What do you want?" And he takes out a little teeny vial. And he says, I want you to drink this vial. And the kid says, are you crazy? It could be poison. And the old man says, I saw what Bella looks like. Better choice. <laughs> and, he, and he thinks for a second and he says, you're right. <laughs> and he takes out this little vial. It's an unbelievable story. He takes out this little vial. And the old man says, just drink this. And he drinks it. And it's bitter. But at the same time, it's sweet. <coughs> so 
says, that is the weirdest thing I ever tasted. What is that? And he says, just think about it for a minute. And he goes, something, I've tasted this before. I have tasted this before. Where did this come from? He says, would you take another drink? He says, sure. Gives him another, another vial. Drinks it down, same bitter and, and, and honey. And he says, I was a little kid. I was a little kid. Maybe it's true that you were, you were my doctor. But all the other stuff, prince, kingdom, pirates, that, that's not true. He says, really? Close your eyes, take another drink. Gives him another drink, closes his eyes. He says, I was a little kid, I remember, I remember. I was in a big bed. I was in a big bed. Huge, with four big posters. He's like, poor people don't have beds with four big posters. He says, and, and give me another drink. Give him another drink. And there was some lady standing next to me, very beautiful in a gown. She had a crown on her head. He goes, of course, that was your mother. And everything starts to come back. The room, the king, the crown, the servants, the palace. And he says to himself, oh my God, what you're telling me is true. I, I was a prince. And the old man says, that's right. And now's the time to get out of here. I have been waiting a very long time for you to remember who you are. Now we got to get out of here before, before you marry Bella tomorrow. He says, and I prepared. The old man says, I'm, we're here a long time. 17 years, 16 years. I prepared an escape. And he takes out the rope. And they go out the window. And there's a boat. And they get into the boat. And he's got all the maps, the old man. He's got everything. Takes them two weeks. And they're back at the seashore of his empire, of his father's empire. But the old man doesn't recognize it anymore. It was a very happy place with streetlights and merriment. And they come into this place and it's dark. And there are people walking around in black. And they're, they're just, you can see in the town, there's no one in the bar. And there's no one singing. And you can just feel the total depression. And the old man says, hurry up, we might be too late. He says to the prince, we got to get to the castle. we got to get to your father and mother. And they come running back to the castle. And they come running in. And the guards are standing there. And the whole castle is, hasn't been cleaned. It's dusty. It's full of spider webs. Nothing's been shined. There's a couple of candles here and there. And they come running in and there's still guards standing at the door. And they're like, who are you? And the young boy looks up the guard and says, you don't know who I am? I am the prince! And the guard says, yeah, prince number 275. So what are you talking about? He says, the king sent out 15 years ago a message that anyone who brings the prince back, he will give him all the money of the kingdom. You know how many people came and said that their kid was the prince? We don't believe anyone anymore. And he says, no, you've got to let me in. And the young boy runs into the, into the throne room and sitting on the throne is the king and the queen totally bent over broken, dark, dreary, sad, and he screams to his parents, it's me, it's the prince, I'm back. They don't even lift their heads. Yeah, number what, 275? They're all like that. And all of a sudden, the old man walks into the room. And he says, your majesty, me you'll recognize. And the king picks up his head, and when he sees the old man, 
his whole life comes back. Because the old man was in the room when the child was taken. If there's anyone in the world that knows where the child is, it's the old man, and the old man is back. And the king says, where's my son? And the old man says, the young man standing in front of you, that's your son. And the king looks at him, and the king sees that he looks exactly like his mother, and realizes that's really his son. I don't have to explain to you the happiness. The kingdom turns around, and everybody lives happily ever after. It's a long story, right? But this is not a Broadway show. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. The king and queen, the king and queen is Avram Yitzchak. The king and queen is Avram Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Leah, Rivka, and Rachel. And they made a nation. And they had a child. And the world was waiting for that child. The child was named Klal Yisrael. The world needed the Jewish nation. Without the Jewish nation, the world would have been destroyed. And Klal Yisrael was born in Mitzrayim. Born in Mitzrayim. And in Mitzrayim, we became very sick. The child became very sick and went to the 49th level of Tumah. We went into a coma. We were dead. One more second in Mitzrayim, it says. And we would have been finished. And the old man is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the world said, when Moshe Rabbeinu came to Mitzrayim and said, I'm here to take the sick ones out. I'm here to save Klai Yisrael. What did Paro say? Who is Hashem? Everybody said, Who's the old man? Who is that? Who's God? I never saw that name, Yud Vavke. Who is he? What is he? And Moshe said, he's the master of Rafur. And the, and the, and the old man, which is Akkadish Baruch, who came into Mitzrayim on the night, on the night that we were the sickest, we were on the 49th level of Tumah, another second that we were gone, and Hashem said, I have a medicine for you. I have food for your soul. It's soul food. It's called matzah. Eat this matzah and you will get better. Eat this matzah with marah. It's a bitter medicine. It's a bitter medicine. Eat this together and you will get better. And that's the only way you will get better. You have to do the Korban Pesach and you have to eat Pesach, matzah and marah. And he sort of forced it down our throat a little bit. And four-fifths of the Jewish nation got wiped out. But we took the medicine. We took the medicine And we got better. But the enemies, the ransom guys, Amalek, and all the nations that try to destroy us and try to kill us, they kidnapped us. But along came the pirates, boys. And the pirates is the gullus that we're in today. Western civilization. Americans, French, English, the whole world. Those are the pirates. And we never told them who we really are. They know we're the chosen nation, but they don't really know who we are. So they sold us. They sold us. So we live here in America. And the other brother is very jealous. And the other brother wants to see every Jew married to a non-Jew. 
and the other brother wants to see us dress like them and look like them and get put into the dirt and become drug addicts and porn and on the internet and be coming to their dirt into their filth into their kitchen and to make us forget that we are the son of the king and we're here so long in the west and we're so used to the porn and the filth and the language and the spitting on the floor and not dressing correctly and not talking correctly and doing all the bad things we got so used to it that we don't even know who we are anymore and then they come and they tell us take that holy neshama take that prince and marry Bella and marry our civilization marry the belly of our filth become part of us Become an American. Become one of us. Beauty is how big your muscles are, how skinny you are, what you wear. Prominence is how much money you have. Not how smart you are or how much you care. And they sold that all to us because we don't know who we are anymore. We're not a prince. I'm a a garbage taker, so I can spit on the floor because that's what guys do. And I can smoke and I can do drugs and I can talk like them and I can curse like them and I can dance like them and I can wear my hat like them and I can move like them. Because I'm a kitchen guy. And on Pesach, when we sit by the Seder, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, remember? He's supposed to, one of the mitzvahs by the Seder is he's supposed to be like you were in Mitzrayim. It's a very weird mitzvah. We don't have that on Sukkot. You were like you're in a Sukkah. You're like you're by Matan Torah. Only Pesach does it say that you have to sit by the Seder, and the mitzvahs are saying, that I'm, I feel like I'm leaving Mitzrayim. You're sitting in Flatbush on Avenue I, and I feel like I'm leaving Mitzrayim? Come on, give me a break. And the answer is, you have a mitzvah to go back there, and to remember. And we say, Hashem, what are you talking about? This is very nice, where Watson gets up, and we're the Kala, and Hashem's the Chassid. How romantic, Rebbe Wallstein. Get out of here. First of all, I'm not a girl. Second of all, I don't look like a kala. Third of all, how can I be God's kala? God's going to pick me, whatever it is. I'm a toilet cleaner. I'm a garbage collector. And I don't believe anything you're telling me. It says you're supposed to sit by the Seder and lean like a king. Yeah, we're the last person, last time someone called you a king. Right? You sit by that table and you think you just have all the abuse you've had your whole life. Everyone's screaming at you and yelling at you and all the stuff you went through. And like, Tonight, I'm leaning. I feel like a king. You know, I lost my parnasa. I don't know which way to turn. I'm having problems all over the place. Tonight, I'm coming and I feel like I'm not a king. What are you talking about? Hashem says, okay, eat a piece of matzah. Eat a piece of matzah. Remind you of anything? It doesn't remind you in your head. It reminds you of Neshama. Your Neshama says, matzah. Long time ago, Mara, matzah. Long time ago, something, Epis, the Shaman said, Epis, I don't know. I remember something, I'm not sure. Give me a little more matzo. Kazayas. Gotta eat a kazayas. Not a little cracker. Give me a little more matzo. Shaman says, yeah, 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 something happened in Mitzrayim. I remember. Some blood on the door. Remember that? Blood on the door. And we were leaning. Oh my God. All the streams started dropping dead. Oh my God, the next morning. And all of a sudden, your neshama, by eating matzah, by the Seder, starts to unravel and starts to remember. 
starts to remember, I'm a prince. We became a nation that night. I'm the king's son. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Kriyas Yamsuf. Matan Torah. Give me some more. And you begin to remember who you are. Okay, now you're all excited. Well, this is great. I'm sitting by my Seder and I'm eating matzah. And my Neshama's waking up. This is so cool. Oh my God. Okay, God, I'm ready. I'm yours. Let's get married. I'm going to be a tzaddik. Oh, don't ask. And, listen carefully, you come to the Seder and you're sitting there and you don't believe your own story. Because 350 times you said that I'm a tzaddik. And 350 times you said, I'm close to Hashem. And 350 times you went through this already, and it never worked! Why should it work tonight? Why should I change Pesach night? And the answer is, that it won't work Pesach night, unless you see the old man. If you don't see the old man, a taka won't work. But if you come to the Pesach Seder, and you spent the next three weeks cleaning out your chametz, and you spent the next three weeks trying to figure out how you're going to get close to Hashem, then you're going to come to the Pesach, to the Seder, and it says, it's an amazing thing, it's a scary thing, and it says in the Zoyar, and it says in Kabbalah, that on Pesach night, not only El Yohan Navi comes to your Seder, but God comes to every single Seder. And He says to His Malachim, listen to how my Kala this is the Russian he uses. Listen to how my is talking about me. So if you're sitting around the Seder talking business, you're dead. If you're sitting around talking by the Seder, talking Russian Hara, you're finished. Because Hashem's coming to your house. You want to hear how the is talking about me? So what do you think of Yankees opening day? So it says in Kabbalah that a Kodesh Baruch Hu comes to everybody's house. Why does a Kodesh Baruch Hu come to everybody's house? Because when the old man comes to the house, then you know that the whole story is true. Because the old man was there when we were taken away. And therefore, the old man comes back Pesach night. I want to call Hashem the old man, but just in the story, comes back Pesach night so we know that the whole thing is true. That's why Pesach night is crazy holy. And that's why it's called the Leil Shimur. So boys, you're not slaves. And you're not toilet cleaners. And you're not, you are Klau Yisrael, you are princes. And don't let anyone tell you that you're not. We are all princes. And what the Yetzirah wants to do is to keep you away from thinking that. So he sticks you in the kitchen. Who's the jealous one? The jealous one is the Yetzirah. He's the boy. And he says, stick him in the kitchen. Stick him in the movie. Stick him in the club. Stick him in the hookah. Stick him in the drugs. Stick him in the alcohol. Stick him in the cigarettes. Stick him in the culture. And you know what's going to happen to that prince? He's going to think that he's a, he's a drug. He's going to think he's a walking hookah. That's what he's going to think he is. And you know what? If that's what he becomes, he'll never realize he's a prince. If he's never going to realize he's a prince, he's going to end up marrying Bella. And that's why so many Jewish people are intermarrying today. Do you know why they're intermarrying? Our highest rate of intermarriage is because those Jewish people don't realize that they think they're slaves in the kitchen and they don't realize that they're really princes. That they're really the king's son. If they would realize that, there'd be no marriage of non-Jewish people. So, what we need to focus on, this is a very real story. And that's why you have, and that's, I'm ending with this, that's why you have both in the Manashtana. The Manashtana is what this guy asked. What are you talking about? Manashtana, what are you talking about? You're telling me I'm a prince and I'm cleaning toilets. What are you talking about? How could a prince be cleaning toilets? And the answer is, 
that you are a prince and you are cleaning toilets. And therefore, tonight we eat matzah. Because tonight we need to eat a little bit of the bitter, of the hard medicine and the maror. Because tonight is different. Because tonight you're no longer cleaning kitchens. And you're no longer a servant to the Yetzirah. Tonight you're a prince. Eat your matzah. And eat your mara. And if you eat your matzah and your mara, what is it going to bring back? It's going to bring back the dipping twice and the leaning. So first comes the first two parts of the manashtana. What? Manashtana Tonight I'm only eating matzah. I'm taking medicine. All the nights I eat bitter things and I eat not. Tonight I'm taking medicine. I'm taking bitter things. Ah! First two manashtanas, you're taking the matzah and the mara. Then you, that's going to bring you to the realization that you're a king. What's a king? A person who dips twice and a person who leans. That's the manashtana. That's the whole manashtana. And therefore, you're allowed to say avadam hayinu. It's a terrible thing to say avadam hayinu. Go to any therapist. They'll tell you, what are you going back into your past for? What are we bringing up your past for? You're out of there. And the answer is, I'm out of there? When I was in Eved, that's when I got my medicine. When I was in Eved, that's when I got my medicine. Now, I'm a prince. Now, I'm back. So there's nothing wrong with Avadim Ayinu. I was in a coma. When I was in Mitzrayim, I was in a coma. I'm no longer in a coma. It's time, boys, to get out of your coma. So many of us are in a coma. We don't even know what we're doing with ourselves. We don't appreciate life. We don't appreciate waking up in the morning. We're depressed. We have nothing to do. We have no goals. We're kicking the ball in the net, and we take the ball out of the net, and we kick it back into the net. And then we take it out of the net. What'd you do? What did you do? All your life, that's all you're doing. Just kicking the ball in the net and taking it out of the net. That's not what life is all about. That's not a goal. person has to grow. You're here to get married and to bring Jewish children into the world and to, to, to make the rest of the world understand that you didn't change your clothing, you didn't change your name, you didn't change your language. We are the representation of God. You know why God put the Jewish nation in this world? For one reason. Because the Goyim can't see God. So God wants the Goyim to see Him through us. Do we feel, the guy sitting in this room, that that's what we're doing? That when the Goyim look at us, they say, now I understand there's a God in the world? Or when they look at us, they say, there's probably no God in the world. The whole reason the Jewish nation, listen to me carefully, the whole reason that there's a Jewish nation in this world is so that the Goyim could see God through us. That's your goal. Your goal is that at work, the people you work with say, Jewish people are honest. <laughs> Jewish people are nice. Not Jewish people are sketching all the time. Then you don't, then you don't, you, don't be, you, don't, you shouldn't be here. You're here, say so when you walk into a place, when you deal with someone in business, you're nice. You open a door for someone, they should say, Jewish people are nice. Jewish weddings are beautiful. Jewish music is unbelievable. Last night, one of the waiters, I went to a wedding, right? One of the Spanish waiders in, in a terrace of Rome, Right, he was standing on the side. He knew all the songs from all the weddings. He was singing all the songs. He, he said, he turned to me. I said, "How do you know all these songs?" He said, "Man, they are so cool." <laughs> We're busy taking their music, sticking it with Hebrew words. The Spanish guy says, "He's like, wow." They were singing na 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 na. He's like, "Wow, that is a cool song." And he knew all the words from all the other songs. Whatever it is, we don't understand that we have so much. We are the princes. We have so much to give. This Pesach night. This Pesach night, you should talk and come to the, to the realization of getting that medicine and remembering who you are. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.